This morning's reading is from 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 11 to 21. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for the opportunity to come these five Sundays, or at least three with you face to face. It's great also to be getting on in the service so early. Um, I have been places to speak where the preacher gets on after an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, and it's very hard work for preacher and people. So to be on so quickly is terrific. Um, I'm so sorry that I don't get to sort of talk and say hello to you, but as you know, the next service is at 10 o'clock, and so we tend to head off and get ready for that. But uh, thanks for your warm welcome. So we'll pray and ask God to help and use this time. We thank you, loving Father, for a new morning and for the opportunity to sit with your word, your Holy Spirit, our teacher. We pray that you would graciously help us to hear, understand, receive, believe, trust and practice what you have told. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure if anything has helped you from this little series, um, but I have been very struck by some verses in chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul talks about how the message of Jesus Christ brings to a person who lives in this world a brand new life in their heart, a clear and unhindered relationship with God, peace with God, and also a hope which goes on into eternity. 
Now, you may not think this is particularly important, but there is no other message that's going on in the world that brings these three things. There is nothing else that can be said by anybody to the people of this world that will bring a brand new eternal life, peace with God, and a future into eternity except the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, if you meet a, a friendly Muslim and you like them and you respect them, you do need to remember that the Islamic religion is not going to bring the Holy Spirit into the heart, nor peace with God, joyful peace with God, nor is there going to be an assured future for a Muslim. <clears throat> if you do your education to the nth degree and you sit with the finest professor the world has ever produced, he cannot bring you the Holy Spirit in your heart, peace with God, and a future into eternity. It's the message of Jesus Christ which brings these three very great blessings. So whether your, your family, your children, your grandchildren become very educated or very successful, whether they become very happy, it's the message of Jesus which is going to bring that new life, peace with God, and on into eternity. Now, it's a tragedy that the Corinthians, who Paul is writing to, had lost their appreciation for this. And the Apostle Paul, in stressing the gospel, has set out for us in these wonderful chapters uh, exactly what we should be appreciating and valuing. So you'll see in your outline I've uh, put down, I'm going to look at two things briefly this morning with you. The first is living between two calendar dates, which we do. And the second is living as Christ's representatives, which if we belong to him, we should. So first of all, living between two calendar dates, chapter 5, verses 11 to 15. You remember that if you were here last week, the Apostle Paul had been speaking of the resurrection. He said, we know we have a future. We, we long to arrive. There will be a brand new body for the believer, etc. And because the, the resurrection is locked in place, that is the destination of Christ's people, he wants to be useful in the present. Okay, so if you know there is an exam coming, it should affect your present. If you know there is an operation coming, it affects you in the present. If there's a wedding coming, it affects you in the present. If there's a holiday coming, it affects you in the present. And the resurrection should have an impact on the present. It's got a motivational effect. And so the first date in God's calendar, which affects us, is the meeting of Jesus. We're going to meet Jesus Christ one day. Uh, we're going to meet him either because we go to him or because he comes to us. Does, can I just say that again in case you missed it? We're going to meet him either because we go to him or he comes to us. And this definite date of going to meet Jesus motivates or promotes in Paul what he calls a healthy fear. You see that verse 11? Fear of God, which is a healthy thing, uh, the beginning of wisdom, we're told in the book of Proverbs, is the sort of fear that we have with the ocean. We fear the ocean with a kind of a respect, an awe, an admiration. 
I presume the Apostle Paul fears that he would turn up before Jesus Christ and be seen to be a servant of Christ who's wasted his opportunities. That causes him fear. But I also presume he fears the many people who are without Christ. And therefore, there is a fear for people who are lost, as well as a fear for his own meeting of Jesus. Notice that this fear doesn't paralyze the Apostle Paul. It doesn't immobilize him. It doesn't cause him to go home and sit in his room and say, well, I'm absolutely terrified. No, it causes him to seek as best he can to persuade people about Jesus. And of course, the Apostle Paul did this in an honorable way. He persuaded people. He said, here's the evidence. Here's the reason. Here's the, here's the history. Here's the foundation for the faith. And um, you see again in chapter 5, verse 11, that the Corinthians could see, if they remembered the Apostle Paul, that he'd conducted himself in a very honourable way. And he wants them to remember that he's conducted himself in an honourable way. And he says, verse 12, I want you to defend me. I want you to defend me from the people who attack me. Uh, If people say he's a crazy man, the Apostle Paul, well, please tell them it's for the sake of the Lord that I appear this way. And if they say, oh, he's okay, well, please tell them it's because of you. I'm trying to be as sensible as I can for you. Well, these false teachers in Corinth who'd snuck in were secretly trying to persuade the Corinthians to go in a brand new direction with a brand new superficial faith. And the Apostle Paul is openly trying to persuade people to go in the direction of Jesus. And his life as a minister, as a servant, was a model of integrity. Now, friends... Um, How might we, you here today and me as well, how might we persuade a person to think about Christ today? There's obviously some very low-key things you can do. One is to go home and pray for people. Uh, I have three children. One or two of them are in a detour, which is causing my wife and myself a great deal of grief, having watched them be extremely faithful in the past. And we're trying to work out this careful balance of, of saying nothing or perhaps being a ready to say something but we are driven to prayer and we're praying that people will come across their path who will say things that will be more difficult for us to say you might also of course give somebody a gift you might send them a book a booklet a little copy of the gospel you might send them um, a link to something to listen to something that you found helpful that's a low-key thing to do or an invitation to your uh, series that's coming up And there are more courageous ways to persuade people. You know, let's have a cup of coffee. I'd like to talk to you about uh, some of the things I've been thinking about lately and then see where that goes in a conversation. Or perhaps there are many in the world today who are reading the Bible one-to-one with non-Christian friends, basically sitting down and saying to them, I don't know if you know anything about the Bible, but uh, let's just read a little together once, and if you think it's as helpful, we'll do it a second time. And if you don't think it's helpful, we won't do it again. So these are some things. <clears throat> On the subject of your little mission that's coming up, and I'm saying all this because Paul says we try to persuade people, I have found it helpful when I'm giving an invitation to one of my neighbours about something to raise the interest slightly and to lower the fear factor. And so if you're talking to one of your neighbours or family, especially about these three 
days where John Dixon is coming, you might want to say something like, look, he's a local guy. He's written a huge number of books that have been used around the world. He's a very good communicator. He's a terrific guy to come and listen to, and you'll be under no obligation except to sit and listen. And then to lower the fact that there'll be other people present, you won't have to speak or say anything, you can hide in the corner, come with me, whatever it is, raise the interest and lower the fear factor. Because you don't want to get to the end of the series and think, gee, I just came myself. And I've got so many friends who don't have eternal life and I just basically took the easy road out. So there's the first thing. The Apostle Paul says we have a date in the future with the Lord Jesus. The second calendar date in God's calendar is Calvary, the day where Jesus died, Good Friday, the cross. So there's a day ahead of us where we'll meet Christ and there is a day behind us where he died. And we live between the two dates, the date of Calvary and the date where we meet him, the date where he showed his love for us, the day where he will show his judgment. And you see in verse 14, we read that the love of Christ, says Paul, compels or surrounds us or literally it holds us. This is the same word as the crowd being around Jesus in Luke 8 or the enemies who would surround Jerusalem, Luke 19. Or this is where Paul says in Philippians 1, I'm hard pressed between the two options of staying here or going to be with Christ. And Paul says this is what Christ's love does for us. Now, this, he's not talking about so much our love for Christ. He's talking about his love for us. When we reflect on his love for us at the cross, it has a holding effect or a squeezing effect or a motivating effect. It compels us. And it's this love of Christ at Calvary which brought us new life and brought us peace with God and brings us our hope. And it was given, as you know, so generously, so undeservedly, so kindly by Jesus. And the Apostle Paul says it presses us, not just to store it away and say, well, I've got it for myself, but to give it away. And from Calvary, of course, until now, these last 2,000 years, millions and millions, we might say billions, have been propelled by Christ's love to love lost people. And if ever you read a Christian biography, especially of those people who've gone to serve the Lord in various and difficult places, you'll know that it was the love of Christ very much motivating them. Let me give you your Marsden, who's been slanderously called the, the flogging parson, the second chaplain to New South Wales, and he's become a bit of a hero of mine because I found a book of Samuel Marsden, a book on Samuel Marsden, written just after his death, which sets out so much of his diaries and his letters that are beautiful. And they tell us that he was a very compassionate and tender man. And um, he was asked by Macquarie to be one of the magistrates in the um, early settlement. And uh, Macquarie set down the punishments for various crimes. And Macquarie, uh, Marsden was obliged to implement them. And so he became known as the flogging parson, even though he himself was um, there really to be as compassionate as possible. And this is what he says, as he works among the indigenous people, having come out from England and left behind his home country of Yorkshire, as he looks at the um, people uh, around him in this country as he's just arrived, he says this, what would I have given to have had the book of life opened 
which was yet a sealed book to them, and to have shown them the God who made them, and to have led them to Calvary's mount, that they may see the Redeemer, who had shed his precious blood for the redemption of the world. But it was not in my power to take the veil from their hearts, little reference to 2 Corinthians, I could only pray for them and entrust the Father of mercies to visit them with salvation. I felt very grateful that a divine revelation had been granted to me, that I knew the Son of God had come and uh, that he had made a full and sufficient sacrifice or atonement for the sins of a guilty world. With compassionate feelings for my companions and great longings for their welfare, under a grateful sense of my own mercies, I lay down to rest free from all danger." There's the uh, chaplain number two in Sydney, Samuel Marsden, longing with the love of Christ to see other people saved. Now we read in verse 14 that this love of Christ means we're convinced, this is a tricky bit, this is where those of you who are thinkers will have to think with me. In verse 14 we see that this love of Christ causes Paul to be convinced, A, one died for all, that makes sense, B, therefore all died. Anybody like to quickly hop up and tell us what that means? It cannot mean that Christ died for everybody and therefore everybody is saved. That's universalism. And we're told in a few verses that the Apostle Paul appeals to people to be saved, so they're obviously not saved. It's unlikely to simply mean that Christ died for his followers and so his followers will have a share in what he did because this is a passage which has to do with the whole world. So I think, along with many others, that what this verse is saying is that Christ died for all. That's the scope of his death. That's the sphere of his death. That's the wide invitation of his death. And therefore all, we might quickly slip in the words, who respond or believe or take up his offer, share in the death or share in the death to the old life and the beginning of a new life. In other words, the the love of Christ is sufficient for the world Every week a prisoner rings me, a guy who murdered a girl back in the 80s. Uh, Every week he rings me and we talk for six minutes. He's been wonderfully converted in prison, went in at the age of 14. He's now 16. Sorry, he he was converted at 16. He's now 46. For 30 years he's been an evangelist in prison. The sphere of the love of Christ is sufficient for the whole world. And the love of Christ goes seeking people and finds them. And then the love of Christ, of course, saves them. So that's, I think, what the Apostle Paul is saying. And you'll notice in verse 15 where this love leads. It leads to a brand new life for Christ. This is one of the most important verses, I think, for believers in the Western world, that we should, chapter 5, verse 15, we, he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them is raised again. Okay, so there's the first of two quick points this morning and the second one much more briefly. Living as Christ's representatives, verses 16 to 21. Now these verses are so great and so rich that they deserve a whole series of sermons, Um, but I'll just uh, try and cover them very quickly. In the first few verses, 16, 17, uh, the Apostle Paul explains that he has a new test for assessing people. And the test that he employs is not what suburb they come from. That doesn't really interest him. 
It isn't the colour of their skin. That doesn't really interest him. It isn't what they sound like, what their accent sounds like. That doesn't really interest him. And it isn't whether they're sexy or not. That doesn't really interest him. The test for him, verse 17, 18, is whether they are in Christ. Like a limb in the body or a branch in the vine, do they belong to Christ? That's the big issue. You're driving through Kalara, Linfield, wherever it is, see a big house, lovely family. You think to yourself, wow, haven't they got it all? No, the Apostle Paul says the big question, are they in Christ? That's the question. Do they belong to Jesus? He says we used to misread people. In fact, we misread Christ, verse 16. But now this is how I read people. Then he explains in verses 18 to 21 how reconciliation works, how a person comes to belong to Christ. And we do need to be reconciled because we're not equals with God. We're not the same size as God and we're not holy like God. We're not even friends with God until two problems are solved. One, our sin and guilt is dealt with and God's anger at the evil that's been done to him is extinguished. God is desperate for friends and would be very grateful for them to take an interest in him. But the Bible says, no, that's not the case. God is perfectly satisfied with himself and people in this world are desperately needy, desperately needy. Well, these two problems are wonderfully solved in the cross. At the cross, sin is washed away and God's wrath is extinguished and God can be satisfied in his justice. Now, because the world is so interested in this idea of unconditional love, I thought I would just quickly mention to you, do, should we as a church be telling people in the world that God loves them? I noticed recently that a YouTube thing had gone around about uh, blessing and uh, people from churches all over the world were singing this, God is for you, God is for you, God is for you, God is for you. And to be honest, I thought this is a tremendous message for the church, but it's not a helpful message for the world. Because does God love people unconditionally? I think the answer is that he loves the world invitationally. He says to the world, come, I want you. Everything is ready. The feast has been prepared. Christ has died. The door is open. But he does not love the world approvingly or carelessly. He doesn't stay satisfied with the hostility that exists between people and himself. And so in these verses, 18, 19, 20, 21, he planned a reconciliation. And you'll see that there are three steps in the reconciliation. First, God initiates, verse 19. The world is affected by human sin. God has planned to bring the world back to himself. And he begins with human sin. Please notice that God initiates this plan of reconciliation. This is not as though God is rough and we are troubled and into the middle steps noble Jesus. No, God wants people to be saved. And so he sends his son, his willing son, his son who said, I delight to do his will. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. This is the God who initiates salvation. Second, Jesus mediates, verse 21. At the cross, we're told in verse 21, he was treated as if he were sin. He was not a sinner. He was not sinful. But God treated him with our sins on his back as if he were sin. How is God going to treat sin? He will deal with sin, punish it and drive it away. 
And as our sin was transferred to Jesus at the cross and your sins were laid on his shoulders, when you put your trust in him, all his sinlessness is transferred to you. So God initiates, Jesus mediates, and thirdly, we communicate. Verse 20, we are Christ's ambassadors or representatives or diplomats or special envoys. And because he died for us, yes, he did die for us, we speak for him. He for us, we speak for him. And our speech has got a double edge to it because there needs to be a little bit of information in what we say. We need to explain to people the the situation. We need to say, people, this is the need we have. This is the news of Christ. People have got to be told some information. But there also needs to be, you'll see in verse 20, a little bit of concern. And that's why Paul says we implore, urge, call, beg, because we are to add to our information some real desire or concern that people be saved. In other words, we're not careless. And if we are careless, and I know what it's like to be careless because I'm a very selfish person, we need to say to the Lord, please, may your Holy Spirit fill and rule my heart and help me to think like you and care like you and love like you because otherwise I'm just going to be a useless slob in the world. Well, there's the breakup of this passage as uh, briefly as we can do it. You'll see these two things living between the two calendar dates, the cross behind us, the judgment in front of us. And we live as his representatives. God has initiated a reconciliation, a very wonderful reconciliation. Christ has mediated it, made it possible. Now, I was speaking at summer school this year, and I told a story which I'll finish with of a little boy, a black boy, must have been a teenager, back in about the 1950s, working in New York in one of the lifts. You remember when they had boys who would run the lifts? And uh, you'd step into the lift and they would close the special screen door. And uh, there was a little black boy running one of the lifts in one of the shops, one of the stores. And he would say this as people stepped in, I can take you to floors one to seven, only Jesus can take you to heaven. And when they asked him why he said this, he said this, because I'm a nobody telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the wonderful cross which lies behind us and we thank you for a very glorious day which lies ahead of us. We pray that you'd help us to be your faithful servants in the present. We pray that you would take and use us, work in our hearts, work in our mouths, work in our lives. Help us to bear fruit as us exactly as we are in the place where you've put us, for the help of helping of others and for the praise of your name. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.